0: Preface by saying if this is this is some of this stuff is now speculative um, opinion type stuff. This is stuff that we can't necessarily verify. What I do want you to understand is that if the nation of Israel went into the promised land and wiped out everybody, man, woman and child, it would have been justified. It would have been right for God to bring punishment in that way. So worst case scenario, everybody in Canaan is killed. No survivors taken. It's not a problem for us to reconcile that with the way that God has revealed himself in Scripture. So we don't have to try to explain away the worst case scenario. But we do want to understand what happened when Israel invaded Canaan. In Joshua chapter 10, verse 40. We see, so Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, and the Negeb, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted destruct, to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So you read that and you're thinking, okay, children of Israel took care of business. I mean, they wiped out everybody. They captured everybody. They did everything that they were supposed to. You go to Joshua chapter 11, verse 12. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured. Struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone that Joshua burned, and all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded by Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So again, we get that picture of utter destruction, it would seem. But then we come to Joshua chapter 13, verse 1. A lot of people think that those two passages there are using hyperbolic language. Meaning that it's an exaggeration of what actually happened. That there was an utter destruction, there was a slaughter... But not everything was destroyed. We come to Joshua chapter 13, like I said in verse 1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years. There remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains all the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites. From the Shihor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron, it is counted as Canaanite. Therefore, there are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim, in the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and Mirah, that belongs to the Sidonians, to Ephek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gibellites, and all, and all Lebanon, toward the sunrise from Baal-Gad, below Mount Hermon, to Labo-Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Mishroth Misrephath Maim Even all the Sidians, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. Here we have a picture that not everything's done yet. That there's still land to be possessed. There's still people to be driven out. There's still conquering that needs to happen. We come to Joshua 15, verse 63. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Here's a people group that did not completely get driven out that began to dwell with the children of Israel. Um, Joshua chapter 17, verse 12. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Joshua chapter 23. Verse one, a long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, Joshua was old and well advanced in years. Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads. Its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land. Just as the Lord your God promised you. You can continue to read down through verse 13 about how there's instruction that the Lord is going to continue to drive these people out that have not yet been driven out. And then we go to Judges chapter 1. This is after the time of Joshua. Judges chapter 1 verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain. Because they had chariots of iron and Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove them out from the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. You continue to see people that weren't completely driven out. So in some aspects, the, the, the scriptures are telling us that what was supposed to be done happened. Probably hyperbolic language because when we get down to the nitty-gritty details, we see people that are still dwelling in Canaan. So, was there complete, utter destruction where every single person was killed that lived in all of these cities? It seems like that's not the case because we have people who continue to dwell with the Canaanites. Again, looking at Scripture trying to understand exactly what happened because the atheist wants to portray to us that complete genocide happened, that the God of the Old Testament instructed Israel to wipe out a whole people group, to give land to a people that were wicked just like the Canaanites. Scripture also tells us that foreigners were to be included as full participants of Israel. Back in Joshua chapter 8, if you want to note that, there was instruction about how to include people into the covenant relationship that God had formed with Israel. There's also some interesting developments with archaeology. And again, this is speculation, but archaeology shows that Jericho, Ai, and Amalek may have been strictly military fortresses, and they may not have been uh, populated with civilians. So a lot of times we have this picture of Jericho being a place where moms and dads and kids were running around and living. Archaeology suggest that those may have been military outposts and that Rahab would have been a servant within that. So it wasn't that there were no women there, but the amount of women and children that were wiped out in Jericho may have been minimal based on the purpose of that outpost of that city. Um, We know that this, this behavior, this wiping out of people and killing of people was not to be the norm in Deuteronomy chapter 20. Verses 10 through 18, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord, your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil you shall take as plunder for yourselves. You shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. So there were certainly times where the women and children were to be spared. That it wasn't a, um, a clear indication that it was always to be the case where you were to wipe out everybody in an attack. There was instances where God would say, no, you're actually supposed to offer peace to these people. And we talked about the possibility of When the children of Israel marched around Jericho last week, that in marching around Jericho, the option for peace, the option for surrender may have been given and Jericho resisted that. We know that women were at least spared at times and were to be treated differently than other countries would have. In Deuteronomy 21, and I was having this conversation with Kyle last week, a big difference in the the God that was leading Israel versus all these false gods is that God said when you attack and you kill the men... You're not allowed to just take these women and treat them however you want to. That would have been the norm for a country to invade, to take the women of that country, use them for their purposes, and then discard them. I mean, just be done with them. And God gave clear instructions. You're to treat these women with dignity. You're not allowed to just come in and take whoever you want to be your wife. There was a process for someone to actually take one of these women to become their wife. They weren't allowed to just treat them as property. They weren't allowed to just treat them as, as their object of pleasure. And that was a big difference between what these other false gods were leading and what they believed were leading these countries to do. These countries would come in and attack and just take the, the women and the spoil and use it however they wanted to. And we see clear instructions from Yahweh about treating these women, these Canaanite women, these women of other countries, when Israel would invade, you treat them with dignity. They were created in my image. You don't get to treat them like an object. That's a big difference. That's something that the atheists don't want us to to see and realize from Scripture. And then the last thing, we see a lot of drive-out language used as opposed to utter destruction, implying that there was an opportunity to flee. And we've seen some of those verses even today in just reading through this. Driving out is different than everybody being wiped out. There was the opportunity for people to flee, to run, to get out of town, to get out of the Canaanite land, um, and they could be spared. And so, again, just kind of going back to last week, people outside the church, people that doubt God's existence, want to convince us that the God of the Old Testament is mean, that the God of the Old Testament is not a God of love, he's not a God of patience and kindness, that he wipes out people for no reason, that... The Canaanites were just living there peacefully, doing their own thing, and God comes in with his people and kills everybody. And that's not the case. That's not how God has revealed himself. God has revealed himself as a God who will punish sin, who will deal harshly with sin, so that every other aspect of his creation can understand and see that he takes sin seriously. And even as he's judging sin, the opportunity for repentance exists. We already highlighted the fact that he did not judge the Canaanites immediately. Instead, he gave them hundreds of years of opportunity for repentance. The same type of time frame that that Peter describes. Jesus has not returned yet. Not because he delays his return. Not because he's, he's forgotten to come back. He delays his return so that people have the opportunity to repent. We see the same God in the New Testament who will deal harshly with sin. When Jesus returns, it will feel like, it will look like at times what happened when Israel invaded the promised land. Jesus will come back, and we saw this in 2 Thessalonians. He will come back in vengeance. He will come back in wrath to bring judgment on this earth for sin. But he's a patient God. He's a loving God who delays that return, giving opportunity for repentance. But then he's also a loving God in the sense that he's provided the way for salvation. He's provided a way for us to be saved from our sinful choices, from our disobedience. And so as we continue through this series, looking at a God who kills today, looking at a God who's jealous next week, looking at a God who is to be feared things that sometimes critics want to throw up and say, how can this be a good God? If he's a God who kills, if he's a God who, who calls himself jealous, how can jealousy be a right thing? How can it be a good thing? How can it be good for us to be called to fear this God of the Bible? We want to look at these topics and see how they fit together to give us an accurate picture of who God is. He reveals himself in judgment. He reveals himself in salvation. We see an encompassing picture of God as we work our way through Scripture. And if we don't see it in context, it does look like bad behavior. It does look like bad things that god does and yet when we see it in context of the story that the bible's telling we see a perfect picture of a god who loves us who is patient who is long-suffering like the psalmist described but is a god who hates sin and who will deal with sin harshly but we can be thankful this morning as we worship together that he's a god who has provided sacrifice for our sin so that we can be saved and escape that coming judgment we're going to sing about that this morning together and i'm going to pray for us
1: Today we're looking specifically at God's jealousy. Um, last Sunday we looked at how God is serious about sin, and today we're going to look at how God is serious about his relationship with us, with the aspect of jealousy. So we're going to start off with some uh, audience participation here. Um, nobody has to walk up here, We're not. Uh, I'm not going to make you do that, but I do want to ask you a question what words do you think of when you hear the word jealousy just anybody envy covet i'm going to repeat it so it's on the podcast what other words do you think of drama what else greed like when you're jealous you're come on green with envy it's it's not a good thing for the most part right who's ever felt jealous anybody anybody ever felt if there are six people okay eight eight okay we're just going to go ahead and say everybody at some point has probably felt jealous right uh, has anybody ever enjoyed feeling jealous it's not a good feeling right it's a uh, feels uh destructive and it feels um dirty inside like you have all these emotions that are connected with feeling jealous about something or somebody it's not something that you want to be there's all these negative connotations that go with feeling jealous okay so we're gonna kind of redefine our understanding of jealousy there are two sides to jealousy okay Um, we've got Merriam-Webster's definition of jealousy here, and um, I'll just start off. The, the first one is being intolerant of rivalry or unfaithfulness, Okay. Um, disposed to suspect rivalry or unfaithfulness, hostile toward a rival or one believed to enjoy an advantage, jealous, and vigilant. In guarding a possession, so you're jealous for something that you have, okay? Some of those can be right. All of them can be wrong, okay? So um, some of them can be extremely harmful in a relationship or like some type of friendship that you have. Being jealous of someone else can be very harmful. But then there are some aspects where you're guarding a possession that can be right with, a, with the right uh, desire behind it. Um, by the way, you don't have your notes today. We had some technical difficulties, but if you look on the, your song sheet, there's a place where you can fill stuff in. Um, so, if I repeat something, you could jot it down if you want to. Okay. Um, so the the first thing is jealousy rooted in sin produces hate and anger. Okay, a jealousy rooted in sin produces hate and anger Um, we see this type of jealousy specifically in scripture Um, go ahead and if you're still in the old testament that's great because that's where we're going to be all day long Um, go to genesis chapter 3 we're looking specifically at jealousy that's rooted in sin which we said produces hate and anger Um, genesis chapter 3 Verses three through eight. We got Cain and Abel here. Um, wait, four. Sorry, Genesis four, three through eight. All right, so we got Cain and Abel. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, you will not be, will you not be accepted and if you do not do well sin is crouching at the doors desires for you but you must rule over it so then jealousy kind of takes root in Cain Cain spoke to Abel his brother and when they were in the field Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him so Cain was jealous that God had found favor favor with Abel he was jealous over it and It brought Cain to the point of killing his own brother. Okay, so this is jealousy rooted in sin, producing hate and anger towards somebody else. Um, Go to Genesis 37. This is another example of jealousy rooted in sin, producing anger and hatred. we got Joseph's brothers here. Starting with verse three, it says, now, Israel or uh, Jacob, who's also named Israel by God. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Skip down to verse 11 and his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. And in verse 18, they conspired against him to kill him. Verse 20, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And in verse 28, they drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites. So Joseph's brothers were extremely jealous of him. His, his Their father had found favor on him, made him this fancy robe. Um... Joseph also had dreams about his how his brothers would serve him. They were extremely jealous, and that jealousy brought them to the point of desiring to kill him because he was better than they were. He, he, he was favored more than they were, and they hated it. So they, they, they were to the point of killing him. They didn't kill him eventually, as we all know, but they sell him away. They go back and tell their dad that he was killed by some animal lion, and... That's kind of their way to get rid of them. Okay, so this is this is the bad side to sin. I mean, this is the bad side to jealousy. Is jealousy rooted in sin? Okay, um, so the question is: Is God jealous? I mean, can God be like that? Is is God feel like someone is better than He is, or that He has to be afraid that that there's Someone more powerful than he is. I mean, that, that's a silly question, right? It says in Exodus chapter 20, which is where we're going to we're going to be in Exodus the majority of the time here. It's the reason why is because this is kind of the beginning of God's relationship with the nation of Israel, His people. Um, this is Exodus is where we see the Ten Commandments. Um, it's right after um, the. Israelites come out of egypt they're freed so now they're kind of on their own okay exodus 20 verse 5 says you shall not bow down to them or serve them for i the lord your god am a jealous god visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me so god says i am a jealous god um you don't have to turn there but deuteronomy 4:24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Exodus 34, 14. For the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. So this isn't just some characteristic of God that he sometimes is, sometimes isn't. He gets upset, and so now I'm a jealous God. There's no uh, up-and-down emotional jealousy here. He says... My name is Jealous, capital J. That's who I am. Like, I'm always that. And he's always that now. He wasn't different then and from the way he is now. Like, he's still Jealous, capital J Jealous. So if God says that he is jealous, what does that mean? We said, obviously it doesn't mean that he's suspicious of being replaced by something better than he is. That's just silly to think about. He's, he's not envious of anyone as if they were more powerful than he is. So this brings us to the next point, that jealousy rooted in righteousness provides protection. All right? Jealousy rooted in sin produces hate, hate and anger, but jealousy rooted in righteousness produces protection. Okay? And this is the jealousy that we see. From God is that his jealousness, his jealousy is for protection, the means of protection. So that's what we're going to walk through today. We're going to see how God's jealousy results in protection and the different things that he's desiring to protect through his jealousy. Okay. Um, first, we're going to look at the word jealous. The Hebrew word for jealous is Kana, um, it's an adjective, and it's used of God as not bearing any rival. And that's very similar to the Merriam-Webster definition of intolerant of rivalry or unfaithfulness. So you can see how not bearing any rivals or not, uh, not being intolerant to unfaithfulness is a good thing. It can be a bad thing. If it's rooted in sin, like you're you're jealous about this person pursuing someone else. Like it can be a sinful thing, but it can also be a very right thing in the right context, okay? The next um, definition that goes along with the word kana is the severe avenger of departure from himself. Severe avenger of. From departure of himself, and this kind of goes along with the Merriam-Webster definition of vigilant in guarding a possession. That can be a very bad thing. Like obviously we we have things that we want to keep, but we want to keep them to keep them away from other people so that they don't have them. It's a very selfish, sinful desire uh, to to have something for the sake of someone else not having it. But it can also be a right a uh, desire, a right thing to have something that is yours and to want to keep it yours in the right context. OK, so there is a time when jealousy is right and appropriate. Now, the best way for us to understand jealousy rooted in righteousness is to use the example of marriage. Um, it's it's a right relationship where jealousy can be demonstrated In the right way. So that's kind of the example that I'm going to use today that I'm going to go with is a marriage relationship. Now, within this marriage relationship, even though some of us aren't married, you can still identify yourself within this because a marriage relationship between a husband and a wife can also be seen in God and his people. So don't feel like if you're not married, you can't identify with this. You're in this marriage as a believer with your groom, Christ, okay? So you're in this already, even if you're not married here on this earth. And and understand that that relationship between you as a believer and God goes much deeper than a marriage relationship here on earth. This is just a marriage relationship here on earth. It's just something to parallel the marriage relationship between the believer and Christ, all right, who's coming back for his bride one day, okay? So... Don't feel like, as I use these examples, that you're disconnected from this if you're not currently married, okay? Um, so we're going to set up the relationship here um, by looking in Scripture between God and his people. Um, the beginning of the marriage relationship really starts when God chooses to create man. I mean, there was he didn't have to create man, but he desired to create man to start us off. Like, we didn't have anything to do with that. We're just here because God chose to create us. All right? So he starts off that relationship in the garden, and then that relationship is broken because we sin against God. We break that relationship off. And so the relationship is broken off until, in Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And again, this has nothing to do with, The goodness of who Abraham is or um, him being anything special, God starts this relationship with Abraham in Genesis 12 because he chooses to. Okay? And then we see the same relationship or covenant, um, which we'll we'll hear a lot today. When you hear the word covenant, you can think to yourself a promise or a pledge or even vows in that marriage relationship. Okay? So uh, the covenant... Is passed down from Abraham to his son Isaac in Genesis 26, um, and then from Isaac it's passed down to Jacob, who is uh, renamed Israel. All right, it's passed down to him in Genesis 28. So we're just kind of following this relationship, this covenant, this this pledge between God and and His people. Um, it says. Uh, so the covenant started with Abraham, now it's been passed, passed down to the nation of Israel. Okay. Um, so we're going to walk through some of the text towards the end of Exodus, and we're going to kind of follow this relationship and see how this jealousy uh, provides protection in this, in this new relationship. Um, and as we do... Whenever you see God or the Lord or the Lord your God, that's going to be like we said uh, the the husband role played by God, okay? So, and then whenever you see uh, Israel or my people, that's going to be played by uh, that's going to be the wife or the bride. You can also, like I said, include yourself into that category as God's people. Still today, we belong to Him, okay? So you can identify yourself. You kind of see the roles as we're going down through this and as I use examples, okay? Um, So turn to Exodus 19, verse 4. This is after Israel uh, escapes from Egypt. They're now their own free nation, and it's time for God to present them with their side to the covenant or promise or pledge or vow. Uh, it's time for him to present them with with their aspect to keep uh, verse four, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my command and keep my covenant, which we said was also pledge or promise or vow, you shall be my treasured possession, treasured possession uh can also be seen as valued property, a peculiar treasure or a jewel. All right, so you know this is the point where all the ladies feel you know all you know like you're this treasured this, this treasured possession. You know like you're like a wife wants to feel like she wants to feel like she's special, like she's treasured above anything else. So he's using this language with the with his people with the nation of Israel here. He says. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So at the beginning of that verse 4, God says, You have seen my commitment to this relationship because I brought you out of Egypt. I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to me. You've seen my commitment, and now it's time for you to show your commitment to this. He says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession. It's time for you to see your end of this relationship, of this covenant that's been started. Okay? Um, Right past that, uh, verse 7. This is the people's response to God saying, this is the beginning of the covenant. This is the the beginning of our relationship. Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So this was almost like they were saying, I do or I accept God says, I've brought you out of Egypt, brought you to myself. Now be my treasured possession. Be my bride by obeying my voice. By 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 keeping the covenant. And Israel says, I do. So it's almost like the the, the vows are being uh you know at the where the the bride and the groom are up in the front and they're speaking and nobody can really hear what they're saying because, you know, they're kind of talking to each other. But Israel says, I do. I will. I accept this. And in, in essence, I mean, how could they not accept it? I mean, for God says you saw with your own eyes in verse four, you saw with your own eyes. These these people. This isn't generations after they've escaped Egypt. They were there. They saw his commitment. They saw his power. And they're accepting the relationship with him. All right. So God has communicated His intentions, and the people have agreed. So let's look at how this relationship, um, of let's look at how the in this relationship, God's being jealous provides protection. Okay. So we said, jealousy rooted in righteousness, produce or provides protection. Okay. So first, God's jealousy. protects his bride. This is the first aspect, or this is one of the aspects of protection. God's jealousy protects his bride. As a husband, if I know something is not good for my wife that could potentially lead her away from me, I'm going to warn her about it, and I'm going to try my best To keep her from harming herself and harming our relationship. I love her and I don't want her to be hurt or led away from me. Okay? So that is my desire as a husband for my wife. If I know that she is going to be led away, that she's going to hurt herself or hurt our relationship, I'm going to try to protect her in that. Okay? Uh, Exodus 23, we see God... In that same with that same desire. These are the warnings that God gives to Israel. Exodus 23, 32 through 33. Just a little bit further past Exodus 19. You shall make no covenant. With them and their gods, they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Snare is kind of brings the same uh, example as to bait or to lure or it's a trap. So if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So God is warning them: Don't make a covenant with these other people. Don't make a covenant. Don't don't worship their gods. Don't give yourself away to them. It will be a trap. It's a trap. They're baiting you. They're luring you away from me okay um skip down to exodus 34 we see another warning to the people there's a lot more going on in these chapters in exodus that's very rich in communicating relationship Uh, i'm just touching on some of the 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 aspects of God's jealousy within this Exodus 34:11 through 12 Observe what I command you this day behold I will drive out before you the Amorites the Canaanites the Hittites the Perizzites the Hivites and the Jebusites Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go and then here's the warning lest it become a snare in your midst Take care Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, which which you're going to, because it will be a snare to you. It will be a trap. They are trying to lure you away from me. Okay, God is rightfully jealous in this. He is trying to protect his bride from from her walking into a trap, from her leaving him. God says, I will protect you by getting rid of these people where you are going and make sure you don't give yourselves over to them so that it doesn't become a snare to you. Don't mess around with these other groups of people. They will steal away your affections for their gods and cause you and our relationship together great harm. He is warning them not to break the relationship, not to break the covenant that he started with them. He's rightfully jealous as a husband is. All right. So God's jealousy protects his bride. He's guarding his possession uh, as a husband protects and guards his wife. Next, God's jealousy protects his covenant. All right. So this is the, the next thing we're looking at. Jealousy rooted in righteousness provides protection. All right. It's We looked at God protecting his bride, and now we're going to look at God protecting his covenant. Alright. So back to our scenario. As a husband, suppose I allow my wife to share her affections with other men the same way that she does with me. Okay? Suppose that I, I I'm okay with her treating other men the same way that she does with me, showing affection to them the same way that she does with me. What does that communicate about how I value our marriage? And what does it communicate about how she values our marriage? And what do other people perceive about our marriage together? If I'm okay with her sharing her affections with other men the same way that she does me, what does it communicate about how I value our marriage, about how she values our marriage, and about how other people around us, Perceive our marriage together. Uh, Back to Exodus 34. We're going to see how God plans to show his unique affections to his people, to his bride. 34.10. Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing I will do with you. He says, I am making a promise, and before all your people, I will do awesome things that have never been done anywhere else to show my unique affections for you, that you are special to me. Now, as a husband, I interact differently with my wife than with any other woman. She is special to me, and I do things for her, with her, that I don't share with anybody else. I treat her differently than I treat anyone else. No one else is is treated like my wife is. To communicate to other people, she is my wife. To communicate to my wife that I value her as my wife. Clearly, I'm treating her in a way that is special, the same way that God says, I will do things among you that have never been done before, ever. And if anybody knows if they've ever been done, it's God. There will be things done in my covenant with you, in my relationship with you, that have never been done before on earth. And it will be an awesome thing that I will do with you. Okay? Um, Turn to Exodus 19, verse 5. Got to go back. We're flipping back and forth. But like I said... This specific section in the Old Testament is the beginning of God's relationship with Israel. And so there's a lot of, uh, I'll say, love language um, that's been going on. I know that might be trademarked somewhere, love language. But um, there's a lot of unique relationship happening in these chapters in Exodus. Exodus 19:5, we're going to see how God plans to show his unique affections for his people to the rest of the world. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured treasured possession. Now, here's the, the key thing. Among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be a kingdom. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So, obeying his voice, keeping his covenant, being in right relationship with him communicates to all people and to all the earth... That we are God's treasured possession. It's not just for us to know. He says, "It says among all people, because all the earth is His. Everything belongs to Him. Yet we will be treated as a treasured possession, as a unique um, jewel that He has." Okay. It it's it doesn't just Communicate it to us that we are God's people, that we are his bride. He's saying everyone else around you, all these other groups of people around you, will know that you and I share a unique relationship that no one else does. I'm protecting my covenant. I'm protecting my relationship with you by making the rest of the world see that you are special to me, that you and you alone are my bride. Okay. Our relationship with him and his relationship with us is different than anything and everything else. It's totally unique. Okay. So God's jealousy protects his bride. God's jealousy protects his covenant. And God's jealousy protects his honor. All right, so we saw he gave warnings to his people. Don't give yourself away to these other gods. It will be a trap. They're luring you away. They're baiting you. Okay? He's protecting his covenant, his promise. He's saying, this is special, and everyone will see it. If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, everyone else will see that this is special. And that this is unique. And that you alone are my treasured possession. And now his jealousy is, is also meant to protect his honor. All right? Um, so if my wife is known, we'll go back to our scenario. If my wife is known for giving her affections away to other men, what does that communicate about my character? About who I am as a husband? especially if it appears that I'm okay with her sharing her affections with other men. You would assume that these other men provide for my wife what she needs just as much as I do, that they're just as good as I am at being a husband. If I'm okay with her sharing her affections in the same way that she shares them with me, I'm putting myself in the same place as those other men. And saying, there's nothing special about me as her husband. These other men are just as good as I am at being her husband. Okay? We saw just a second ago that that devalues the covenant relationship. But it also devalues who I am as a husband. I'm not special. I'm not unique. And God won't have that. says, in my notes, for God to share his people with other gods little gods, puts these other gods on the same level as himself, and that is a huge problem. It's a problem because nothing else is infinitely holy and glorious as God is. And it's of utmost importance for God to protect the essence of who he is. He is the only one who is infinitely holy and Infinitely glorious. And he won't share that with anybody else. And it is important to him. That it is clear. That he won't share that with anybody else. That he's not on the same level. As these, as these other made up gods. You don't have to turn there. But Isaiah 42.8. Says I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give. To no other. Nor my praise. To to carved idols. Nothing else shares his glory or his praise with him. God is rightfully jealous for who he is. He is rightfully jealous for who he is. For protecting his honor. You don't have to turn there. Ezekiel thirty nine twenty five. I will be jealous for my holy name. All right. That's. The essence of what we're saying here. I will be jealous for my holy name. To protect who I am. To protect my honor. I will be jealous for it. I will protect it. One article I read said, God's jealousy is the natural and necessary byproduct of his absolute sovereignty and infinite holiness. So it's the natural and necessary byproduct of his absolute sovereignty and infinite holiness. He's protecting who he is because there's nothing else like him. And he is not okay with other gods pretending to be like him. The all-powerful God of all creation is jealous to protect his honor. So God's jealousy protects his bride, his jealousy protects his covenant, his jealousy protects his honor. Now we're going to hop into the application and spend the majority of our time there because this is very applicable to us right now. We were all in Exodus looking at the nation of Israel and God's people then but this applies directly to our relationship with God now. Okay? All right, so we've seen how God's jealousy provides protection, but what is the proper response to God's jealousy? We've seen him be active in his jealousy, but what is the proper response to God's jealousy? Christians being jealous results in devotion to God. Christians being jealous, of course, the right jealousy results in devotion to God. If I'm rightfully jealous, if my jealousy is rooted in, in in righteousness, then I will be devoted to my husband, to my God. I will be devoted to him. Okay? As a husband, when I am seeking to protect my wife, to protect my marriage, To protect my character, my wife's natural response is love and devotion towards me as her husband. When I am seeking to protect my wife, to protect our marriage, and to protect my character, her natural response is love and devotion to me as a husband. Okay? Exodus 32. God's people witnessed his protective jealousy firsthand by having to pay the price for their unfaithfulness. Okay, so in the beginning of this relationship together, the people are already unfaithful. And they witness God's jealousy firsthand. Okay. This is Exodus 32. This is right in the middle of Moses receiving from God. He, they, he God had already given them the Ten Commandments with the people. The people are present there, and they hear the Ten Commandments. And then the people say, Moses, from now on, like, can you be the one who talks to us? Because we're afraid for God to talk to us again because we feel like we'll die from it. And so Moses says, okay, so... The the people hear the Ten Commandments for themselves. They hear their aspect of keeping the the, the relationship. And then Moses goes on the hill, and he's getting all the um, instructions on the tabernacle, like everything that needs to be built, what it needs to have, the priest's clothing. They're getting all this list. And then right in the middle of this, God says, uh, Exodus 32, 7, The Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are our gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So right in the middle of all these instructions, God says, go back down the mountain because the people have, corrupted, have, have made their own god. That, and they're worshiping it and saying that this little thing down here is what brought them out of Egypt. And God's, not, God's extremely angry about this. So we're going to skip down to Exodus 32, 19, 19 through 20. So the people are unfaithful. As soon... Talking about Moses coming down the mountain. As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf, they made a, a golden calf, and the dancing... People are dancing because they 're excited about this new god that they have moses anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. So the tablets are what the commandments are written on and all these other construct, all these other instructions is basically like the the vows or the, the covenant written down for the people to keep, and Moses just throws it down on the ground, almost like imagery for what has happened with the people. They've broken the covenant. They've broken the relationship. It says, they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it. No, I'm sorry. Uh, he threw the tablets out of his hands, broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. I mean, that is severe anger. I mean, it's almost like for some reason I think of like a, a dog owner or a cat owner. You know, your dog the dog messes in the house and you go and show them what they did and say, No, bad dog. You know because if you if the dog is over here and the mess is over here it's like don't do that again and they're like, what? don't do what again? So like you know you take the dog over there and you point it to him and you say, don't do this like this is this is bad and so you kind of help create the correlation there. well Moses in essence does that to the people of Israel by making them drink this golden calf that they had created and saying, don't do this again. You've been unfaithful. You have broken the relationship. Don't you remember what God said? What God did? You saw it for yourself. He brought you out of Egypt. He has shown you your commitment. He has shown you his commitment to you. And this is what you do. A little further down, verse 26. Then Moses stood... Of the people fell. The the people of Israel are seeing from the other perspective God's jealousy for his people, God's rightful jealousy for the people, and they're paying the price of unfaithfulness. Verse 35 Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Now, this seems extreme. They had to to basically drink gold that was crushed into a powder. 3,000 men were killed, and then a plague was sent on them. Yet, this is a small sacrifice for what God wanted to do. If you go back up to Exodus 32.10, this is what God wanted to do. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. That's what God wanted to do. They broke the covenant. They broke the relationship. And God desired to just get rid of them, just to, to get rid of all the people. But we see... After that, Moses intercedes for the people on the people's behalf and says to God, don't do this. For one, the people, the Egyptians will say, why did God bring his people out just to kill them? So Moses says the the Egyptians will speak. They'll basically say, you're not a good God for what you did. And then Moses says, remember the covenant that you started with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember that promise that you made. And so because of Moses' begging God not to do what he wants to do, instead, 3,000 people are killed, there's a plague sent, and the people have to drink the very God that they created with their own hands. So this is just a small price to pay. This is... The result of their unfaithfulness, they are witnessing all these things that are happening to them. And this is how they respond to seeing God's seriousness about his relationship with them. All right. This is how they respond. Turn to Exodus 35. It's a little bit further down. So all these things happen to the people because of their unfaithfulness. And this is their response to what God has done. 35 verse 4. Moses says. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart. heart, Let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, bronze. And then he lists all these other things that the people need to bring. They're basically collecting all this stuff to build. The tabernacle. To build all the other things. Um, Instruments that they need, um, and to make the priest's clothing. So Moses is saying, this is after all this other stuff. The three thousand, the three thousand people have been killed, um, and the plague is sent among, and the plague was sent on them. This is after that. So Moses says, we're, we're making a, we're collecting a contribution for everything that we have to build. Okay. Verse thirty-five. I mean, chapter thirty-five, verse twenty-one. And they came everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments skip down to 29 all the men and women the people of israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the lord had commanded by moses to be done brought it as a free will offering to the lord so the people respond by bringing the things that they value all their possessions they're bringing them but if you look at chapter 36 3 through 7 not only are they bringing their possessions it says and they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary they still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for, the, for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. The people witnessed... God's seriousness about his relationship with them, the consequences of unfaithfulness in that relationship. And they responded by saying, anything you want, you can have. The things that we value, the things that we have, these possessions, aren't worth anything. You can have as many and all of it that you want because we are devoted to you. We've seen the consequences of breaking relationship and now we are devoted to you everything we have every possession we have you can you can have it take it get it you know get it away from us we are devoted to you so our application question for us according to your life who or what are you devoted to If you were to take a look into your, kind of sum up your your daily activities, sum them up into a week, sum sum them up into a month, kind of put them all together, what does your life say you are devoted to? God is serious about our devotion to Him, and He is serious about not sharing that devotion with anything else. So it is of utmost importance for us as his people and as his bride to examine our lives and to say, what am I devoted to? Who am I devoted to? Am I devoted to the one who is devoted to me? What does my life look like? We need to, to, to take an assessment of our lives to see where our devotion is. The objects of this world cannot be where our devotion is. It is a snare. It is a trap. It is bait. And it is meant to lure us away from God. And Christians cannot be devoted to money, to status, to image, to sex, to pornography, to themselves, God will not have it and he will not share it. It's not possible for him to share who he is with something else that's not worthy because it's not who he is. It's not infinitely holy. It's not infinitely righteous and God won't share it. And so it's important for us to say, what or who am I devoted to? Am I devoted to the things of this world that are clearly Luring me away from God. I have an example here um, of believers being devoted to God, and it's a story called the Forty Martyrs of Sabast. And uh, just as you as you go through this, think and see the devotion of. These men, okay? Forty great soldiers from Cappadocia in Rome's vaunted 12th Legion shared Paul's jealousy for God some 250 years after his death. So, this is 250 years after Paul had died. Licinius was reigning over the eastern portion of the empire but was sensing an increasing military threat from the west. Licinius became more and more repressive in his policies, particularly towards Christians. To solidify his strength, he called on his armies to demonstrate their support by offering a sacrifice to the pagan gods. So Licinius feels threatened, and so he demands that those who are in his armies show their commitment to him by sacrificing to pagan gods. Most of the legions stationed in Sabas, a city south of the Black Sea, dutifully complied, but the forty Cappadocians, all Christians, respectfully declined. For more than a week they were placed under guard, where they sang and prayed together continually. Their captain pleaded with them Of all the soldiers who serve the emperor, none are more loved by us and more needed right now in your love and hatred, it locks you to love